0: It's a competition of ideas. You know, it's a collaborative competition of ideas. So if, if you propose a organized set of ideas as a proposal, some parts of them might end up being good and used and some parts might not. And you just have to be, you know, open to that. Hello
1: there, how are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Casa. Whether you've just bought your first sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they've provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is BCB groupcom forward slash peter. Next up, it is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Also today, we have BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over $50,000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to blockfi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I dot com.
2: Morning, Adam. How are you doing? Morning. Good. New studio. Never done this one before. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Well, uh... anyway, we've got um, a technical topic to get into, which is uh, always good to do on the show because uh, I get a lot of questions coming in from people who aren't technical like myself who want an explanation of things. And over the last... A uh, few weeks, I would say, I became aware of a uh, push by uh, Jeremy Rubin and some people who support him to push uh, CTV into Bitcoin, um, and it seemed like a big change. There was a lot of drama. There's a lot of discussion. It was the first I ever became aware of it. Even though Udi have been telling me this has been worked on for years, and when I compare it to something like Taproot it was something, even though I didn't understand it, I was fully aware of it for a long time, probably. At least two years before it went live, I was aware there was broad consensus for it. So it opens up like a whole can of worms of things to talk about that I think there's going to be people who are not technical like myself, who don't really always care about the technical details, but they care that the Bitcoin's being looked after in the right way and there aren't things being implemented that maybe bring risks to their investment. So loads to get into. We're going to start right at the basics. Um, And I want to start with what is a BIP. I covered this before, uh, a couple of years ago now, Um, but but I think that's a good starting point. So do you want to explain what a BIP is?
0: A BIP stands for Bitcoin Improvement Proposal. And um, it's a kind of specification for a proposed change to Bitcoin, which may be a consensus change or maybe a kind of opt-in thing that, you know, some wallets can use and others choose not to. And... So I guess BIP1 is interesting as well. It was proposed by Amir Taki, who is, you know, there's there's confusion between a Bitcoin developer of a particular wallet or Bitcoin developer or people looking at Bitcoin protocols in general. So I think BIPs are interesting to anybody technical working on Bitcoin, whether work it, whichever wallet they're working on. And some people are not even programmers, but they're interested in protocols and security. Were, so
2: Were there changes to Bitcoin prior to BIPs?
0: Uh, probably. I'm I'm supposing in the early days that Satoshi just like fixed patches and rolled them out and told people on IRC and they all upgraded. So it was I think there was less kind of caution, probably a lower security bar in the early days and things became more cautious, more careful, more systematic as time went forward.
2: And then when did the BIPS come then?
0: I'm not sure of the date of BIP1, but it's, I think it's got to be, like, pretty early, you know, 2011, 2010, something like that, I would assume. I'm, I'm trying
2: to imagine how, like, the process became established that there would be a BIP.
0: Right. Well, I mean, I think, actually, the the uh, Bitcoin upgrade process draws a lot from other internet protocols. And that evolved, you know, in the, I guess, mid-80s, 90s. Um it's something called the IETF, Internet Engineering Task Force, which uh, manages a list of RFCs, which are BIP-like things describing you know, email protocols, web protocols, low-level internet transport protocols, all kinds of things that um, ensure interoperability uh, at the internet level. And actually, not coincidentally, there was a, um, a big political debate about internet protocols i think in the mid 80s where there was starting to be big internet companies like cisco and microsoft who saw the internet protocols and thought they would like a vote and that they would they thought their company's interests should be represented in how the protocols evolved so it's kind of see some parallels with that with the block size wars mm. 2015 right so ultimately and and you know the people working on the protocol said well this isn't good Internet protocols should be for the good of humans everywhere. Users first. Companies, you're just service providers. You know, it's interesting. We want to hear your technical experts, but we don't want you to override internet protocols in the interest of your companies because your companies could come and go and internet is for humanity, not for you. Well, uh, it reminds me of the whole net neutrality thing. Yeah, so so ultimately, they, you know, the, the users won that one. And there's a famous quote from David Clark, which is something like, you know, we don't believe in kings and presidents, we believe in rough consensus and running code. And so, so that was, you know, a famous quote, making the point that they were going to use a rough consensus process, which is a kind of um, decision-making process from business or organizations, religious organizations, political organizations, that's hundreds of years old and predates internet and everything. And so Bitcoin adopts that, but makes it a bit more decentralized.
2: Right, okay, okay. So, BIP1, Amitaki.
0: Yeah, so it just it describes some of the process, you know, creating a BIP, making a draft, that kind of thing. And usually, you would want some example code so that it kind of proves that it works. So if there are one or two implementations, that's that's better than words, because words can sometimes be less precise than you thought they were.
2: Okay, but but how many BIPs have we had now?
0: Oh, I don't know, probably 100,
2: 100 or something. 100. Okay, so someone wants to someone's got an idea to improve bitcoin um, they develop a bip or they propose a bip how do they distribute this because this is the thing that's totally unclear to me
0: um so i th- it's there's not that much of a bar to getting a bip like the fact that something has a bip doesn't mean that anybody's going to implement it or the bitcoin's going you know the bitcoin protocol will be upgraded using it but you know, if you if you propose something that, you know, passes some basic, you know, it makes rough sense. Some people are discussing it. You can ask whoever is currently tasked with assigning numbers, can you have a BIP number, and then you put it, then add it to a list on a website.
2: Right, okay, so there is a central
0: repository of the BIPs. Yeah, I think it's in GitHub.
2: Right, okay, so somebody makes a proposal for an idea for an upgrade, and they request a, a, a BIP number, maybe have some sample code to explain it. And that goes then to who?
0: Um it's just available to anybody who is interested in Bitcoin's technical evolution. And depending on the type of BIP, you know, some of them are kind of core network rules. And then people are interested in security and robustness. And you know, if it's an opcode they're interested in What's an opcode? Uh, we yeah. I hear about these all the yeah. time. I've never Sorry.
2: actually in any interview said somebody explain an opcode to me.
0: So at the the lowest level, Bitcoin has a kind of uh, programming language and a little bit like CPUs. CPUs have operations at at a basic level, which are very simple things that just add two numbers together and things like that. So Bitcoin has something like that at the lowest level. And over time, there have been new opcodes added to add new functionality, basically.
2: Right, okay. And so... The BIP goes out there. Uh, a few people might take a look. A lot of people might take a look. Um, you'll tend to get some feedback delivered in certain ways. And I guess if a BIP is, you know, doesn't have much interest, then doesn't have much support, then that person either has to rework it or forget about it. Whereas if something shows a lot of interest, it. Can, I guess this is the rough consensus thing, right? It's a, It's a bit messy.
0: Yeah, I mean, the... The ITF has some, um, you know, texts and history about what rough consensus means in this process. And and their model is a little bit more centralized. But generally the, you know, in in some cases there may be multiple ways to do something. And so one question is which is the best way to okay. do it? And then the idea is that I mean consensus generally means unanimity. Everybody agrees. But you've got to place some sanity bars around that because some people object. In a illogical way, just to be disruptive. I mean, not not technical regular contributors, but if you if you just made a hard rule that, hey, if there's any objections, everything stops. Now in a political version of consensus, that's basically what happens that you know unless unless everybody agrees, things stay the same. And that's kind of what you want for Bitcoin in a way, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want you know people to make drama and be able to change it because that's that's where we started from. you know, the two thousand and eight financial crash the politicians being asked to make extraordinary changes to the money supply and you know, basically making the money unreliable. Um, like Luna. Yeah, uh, recent news. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the, the kind of process. Right, okay, okay, so I get it. And
2: then if there's some interest in something, it gets developed, gets to the point where there's general rough consensus that it's wanted, the code gets developed it gets tested and then you go through a, a process of like i guess activation so that's like the general process
0: right i mean like there's there's um some historic examples um you know because some people commenting are you know looking at it ad initio without any of the history of how it has worked and that it does work and it works very well for what it's intended to do which is to make it very hard to you know, push changes to Bitcoin that not everybody wants, and you know they they might look at that as an obstacle because they want this. So then they'll say, "Well, we should change the process." Uh, first question is, "Well, before you change a process, do you realise there is a process, but it works, and why it's designed? You know, why Bitcoin uses this process?" So, so that's thing I mean, like some historic examples are P2SH, which probably people have heard about. Mm-hmm. It's it's a mechanism that's used for multisig. At a time it was introduced. I don't know, probably about 10 years ago, there were three versions. And there's an interesting cautionary history there, which is that there was one called Opival, which some people were extremely keen on and pushed hard. And they were about to you know, launch it. And Russell O'Connor had a look at it, a developer who's still active in Bitcoin um, today he had a look at it and found a horrendous flaw with it and said, wait a minute, you can't activate this. It will, uh, you know, create a denial of service amplification and it's too dangerous. And so everybody recognized, like, wow, that's a terrible flaw. Let's abort that immediately at the last minute. And so then it switched over to P2SH, um, which was an alternative proposal. But there was actually another one called uh, CHS. And I think mean, there was there was a bit too much urgency, and so P two S H won over C H S, even though people were kind of on the fence or thinking maybe C H S was slightly better, but they didn't care enough. But in hindsight, you know, given a few years and see how it how it used it evolved and what the limits were, turns out C H S would have been the better of the three proposals. Okay. They narrowly evicted, so so there was kind of cautionary. So I think people learn from cautionary things. So now now here we are, you know, scroll forward to covenants. There are four or five different versions, again, somebody's very enthusiastic about one and making a lot of noise, but there are other variants and they're probably better.
2: And I, I guess with um, certain upgrades, there's so there's certain ways to do things, which can be a, a discussion point. Um, there's certain changes that are easy binary decisions to make. So if it just makes Bitcoin more efficient, it's kind of
0: either makes it more efficient or it doesn't. Taproot is a good example of that, right? So, I mean, the, the payload, well, there's both parts of Taproot make it more efficient uh, but and and more private, potentially. The Schnorr signatures are just more compact signatures. And of course, there were discussions about specific encoding and how to make the multi-signatures. And so there were lots of discussion there, but there was no debate that Schnorr signatures were the the building block. But with something like Covenants,
2: it brings new functionality where it doesn't seem to like it doesn't seem to be that everyone agrees what it actually means or fully understands maybe what they mean. And if that brings any risk to fungibility and, you know, blacklist, whitelist, you'll be able to correct whether that's right or wrong. But that's a more contentious issue because if you can change what you can do with Bitcoin rather than just make it more efficient, then there deserves to be more of a debate about the what the outcome for this is.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's true to say that Bitcoin's programming language is sort of compact, concise, and sort of security first, and sort of intentionally safe and cautious, right? And so the covenant idea expands what you can do. I think philosophically, Bitcoin likes small scripts, not you know big, complicated programs. So I suppose there's a potential that people could write more elaborate things, which probably beyond a certain point are not good uses of block space. It could be done in different ways.
2: All right, so we understand what BIPs are. Let, let's get into the specifics of this then. And, and uh, it's no criticism of Jeremy. Um, he's, uh, I talked to him, he's a great guy. But uh, at the same time, we had, like I say, for me, it just came out of nowhere. And it might have been worked on for two years. Maybe I've missed some of the discussions. But for me, Taproot was out there in the open, being openly discussed by everybody I know for a good two, three years. I think I first spoke to Andrew Polster about it at MIT about three years ago. First I became aware of uh, CTV was a few weeks ago, and people were talking about activation. So that was an immediate red flag to me because I was thinking, well, I'm pretty sure I should have heard about this. So I was nervous about that. Um, Before we get into that, though, should we explain what covenants are? Yeah. And why there's some contention around it.
0: Yeah. Um so a covenant is is I guess it's like a word borrowed from legal terminology. So if you've ever engaged in a property transaction, real estate, there'll be some clauses on your, you know, on your house or your apartment that says, you know, you're you've got to maintain this boundary wall with the neighbor or something like that. And it's a covenant because when you sell it, you've got to maintain that clause. You can't like decide you don't like it and remove it. It's you. So it's not within your authority to remove this rule, and so that applies to these scripts. That the idea is that you can uh, create a transaction. You opt into it as a receiver that has a restriction on how you can spend it, and that's actually turns out to be useful for certain programmability. Um, I think the most. Um, concretely useful example people give is a time lock vault. If you, if you try to do cold storage, it's quite interesting. It would mean that you could store some Bitcoins in cold storage. When you want to take them out, you do a devaulting process. And then, let's say for a week, the transaction could be cancelled and go back into the vault. And if it's not cancelled within a week, then you can spend it, you know, wherever you were trying to spend it. And that, give, that gives you some safety because... You know, you you could give the cancel button to your friends, extended family, colleagues, that kind of thing. And if they see a lot of coins moving and they can't reach you, they could get suspicious and cancel it. So it has that kind of, that's that's the basic idea for the for the vaults. And it's possible to build a kind of a version of that in today's Bitcoin scripts by deleting private keys. But it's a little, you know, it's, it's not the most elegant way to do it, but it, it would work. Uh, nobody has actually implemented that. And of course, it's a flexible mechanism so people could build other things with it. You know, potentially um, UTXO sharing, which is the kind of scaling idea. But I think people also lose track of the fact that a lot of the things that are possible with Bitcoin scripts are not implemented and made available in wallets in a usable form. So there's lots of innovation that could happen today using an existing scripts. And so that kind of, you know, ease of use, standardization of formats understandable and easy-to-use availability in wallets is lagging often by years, right? So, you know, even once we get Taproot, as you see before, wallets support it. It was the same with Segwit. You know, it's over 50% now, but it took some years. And I'm sure it would be the case for covenants too, right? Or time-like vaults. Is there any validity to the argument against
2: covenants that they um, affect Bitcoin's fungibility?
0: Um... Well, there are two versions of covenants broadly, and uh, one is recursive. So,
2: is this what Andreas was talking about?
0: Yeah, I think so. So, uh, the re- so the original sort of covenants for Bitcoin proposal was by Greg Maxwell on the Bitcoin Talk list, I think, in two thousand thirteen, something like SCIP, which is a technical term. A hilariously bad idea, and so he was thinking about the the things that could go wrong. But I think since that time, people have started to think more about it, muse on the idea, mull it over, and think that you know certainly restricted covenants are probably safe, and even recursive covenants are, are reasonably safe because of because you opt in and so forth. And you know, so like at least three arguments about why that might be okay that have been developed since then. One is you have to opt in as a recipient. Now, that that can be a slippery slope because, you know, if somebody in authority, like a bank, says opt in or don't have business with us, how much choice do you really have, right? So that's one argument. Uh, Another one is that the fact that Bitcoin doesn't have covenant capability today, because it's a programming language, you can often build, you you build a huge permutation of things using the building blocks, right?
2: Mm.
0: So... Uh, Russell O'Connor made the argument that it's almost an accident that Bitcoin doesn't have covenants today. It was because some of the opcodes were removed because they had bugs in the very early days. If Cat was there and a few other thi- features had been implemented slightly different, we would have had them by side effect. Right. So it's as the functionality of Bitcoin script uh, gets more general over time, it's probably going to cross that boundary possibly even by accident and it might there might be a small possibility that it's possible today even if somebody really put a lot of effort into finding some clever tricks to just about make it work so that's to say well if it's if it's almost possible it's general implication of programmability maybe it's not such a clear important line and I think um, you know the last thing is just that it's just programmability so you know you don't have to use it it's opt-in um, and that you can the the uh, sort of uh, KYC Bitcoin risk that people worry about. They're ba- basically saying that what if um, you know a set of banks agreed to a standard where there had to be KYC on a Bitcoin or you couldn't transfer it. Now it turns out you can implement that with multi-six, and people have proposed that before. Okay. So from that point of view you know, again, you'd have to opt in. So it has largely the same characteristics. And those are generally called uh, sort of informally online covenants, which is there's a multi-sig, one key is held by an authority and it opposes some policy. So they're kind of online covenant because that policy can be recursive if they if they choose.
2: And what about whitelists and blacklists? Is that possible? Is that a valid concern?
0: I think they mean basically the same
2: thing. Is which it basically? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you yourself, Adam, i Obviously, I back you. I don't mean no pun intended, but um, are you okay with the idea of covenants?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, whether it starts with simple or goes straight to a more generic version is a topic being discussed at the moment, and there are technical people on either side of that. So, one argument for starting simple is that you know Bitcoin can gain some experience from that, and that, that can inform the generic. But the other point is that. You know, Bitcoin doesn't have the the rate of introduction of new opcodes is not very rapid. So if you're going to take the time and expense to review and get consensus on a covenant feature, you might as well do it properly once. That's the counter argument. I think a lot of the technical people are more of on that line of argument. Uh Rusty Russell has proposed one, which is sort of extensible within itself, so it can start simple and have kind of feature extensions over time. So that's another kind of hybrid approach.
2: Okay, I'll come back to that. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about is that, and again, I don't understand the detail of this, but some of the arguments regarding CTV was that it would introduce the ability to shitcoin with Bitcoin. What, what was this about? I
0: did not pick that one up. You didn't pick
2: that one up? No. No, that came up quite a bit. Uh, it was starting to give more Ethereum-type functionality with scripting. Well, smart contract stuff
0: oh I guess I guess if you can um make more complicated scripts maybe some uh, automated trading kind of functionality becomes possible right so would you say it's a fair fair way to explain this where we are is that co-
2: covenants there is a broad consensus that these might be okay um we should be careful there is a proposal from jeremy that's been fairly well developed that he feels ready is ready to go that doesn't have strong consensus either amongst uh, core devs general devs the community there are competing proposals that those who aren't with jeremy think need considering as well and jeremy's idea isn't dead it's just not at that point where it's reached consensus is that a fair
0: yeah, I think that's his, that's approximately the situation. His, um, like
2: his his proposal isn't dead.
0: No, I mean, and and you know, the assuming that consensus is reached on something, it may be none of them. It may be a synthesis of the best ideas from all of them, for example, right? Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, there's there's a sort of experience in history to it. So, for example, many people have gone through this process where they proposed a BIP, And it's informed something else. So Christian Decker, who's one of the Lightning authors, and actually the co-author of APO, which is another opcode that's in flight at the moment, sort of competing or ideally should come before Covenants because it's been in the queue for longer and helps Lightning. So before Segwit, Christian was working with Peter Will on... um, normalized transaction ID. So it was a SegWit, it was an attempt to fix the problem that SegWit fixes. And it turned out SegWit was a better way to do it. So that, that bit got left in history, right? And so, you know, that's an experience you have, right? You work on something, it reaches its limits, and somebody finds a better way to do it. Now the fact that you worked on it, it wasn't lost effort because the realization that there were limitations there informed the new design. Or maybe it borrowed some of the design ideas. So, why do you think we've got to this point where there is this kind
2: of disagreement? Uh, because there's only people who support what Jeremy's been doing, thinks it's fine, thinks it's ready to go. There's people who don't. And as I said to you, like, you know, you've got it on your T shirt, the don't trust verify. It's a really great thing that people say and kind of as a kind of like a moniker for Bitcoin. But actually, it's completely impossible for me to not trust some people. I cannot verify wallet code. I have to trust at some point that somebody else has done it. I cannot uh, verify whether this is good for Bitcoin or not. I have to build trust and I build trust around people. So I have a high level of trust in yourself, Peter Wille, Andrew Polstra, Matt Carallo, uh Greg Maxwell. And that's the trust that's been built over time. I have less trust with Jeremy. That's not to say I don't trust him. I just haven't had that built. And the trust is built by yeah you know, a combination of how much time I've spent with somebody how much trust they have built within the community you know it's like career history time in you know time in the in the community etc so I think people do have to rely on trust sometimes and when jeremy proposes an idea and I you know review it and say okay that's interesting I don't know much about it and I see oh adam back uh, is not supporting it and i See, maybe other people like Matt are not even talking about it. I, that that's a red flag for me, and is I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. I, I think I think that's just the reality.
0: Yeah, I think it's true for everybody because, you know, I mean, my background is like applied crypto, so I know quite a bit about internals of Schnorr signatures and things. So in a way, the Schnorr signature part of Taproot came from IRC discussion in 2013 where i was saying bitcoin traditional signatures they're better and you know people listened over time and eventually that got picked up so but at the same time i wouldn't necessarily know you know the serialization details of taproot or you know how it's been coded and stuff like that so like yourself i'm trusting that some very clever engineers have carefully built that rigorously tested it and peer reviewed line by line each layer coded it And so you're sort of relying as well that there are many eyes carefully checking, and a lot of mutual interest for it to be secure. So I think that's that's ultimately what people are relying on. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something about Bitcoin change process, which is maybe a bit like aircraft design modifications, right? Wow. Have you seen the Boeing documentary? I haven't seen a documentary, but I read quite a bit about the uh the Max issue and I I'll watch aircraft crash investigations, so I find it very interesting.
2: Yeah, I've I've watched I think nearly every episode of that because I used to be shit scared of flying and watching air crash investigation actually made me more confident in flying. Strangely, because you you see the A B testing that a bunch of people have been through with <laughs> flying. But the Boeing thing. So it was when I um when I first interviewed Austin Hill, he he um He said to me, Bitcoin development should be like nuclear, I think it was like nuclear reactor uh, building. It should be considered the same or, well, no, no, it's um, uh, space flight. It should be the same because one mistake on a space flight, everyone's dead. One mistake in Bitcoin, everyone loses their money. It has to be considered the same, you know, the same rigor, the same testing. And uh, yeah, so like… That just reminds me of that. And when you say like airplanes, I was like, well, it went wrong with Boeing.
0: Well, so so the... The rigor. One of the reasons I think that it's an interesting analogy, which is counterintuitive to many people, including technical people like Jeremy, who come from other backgrounds, um, is that um, aircraft, yeah, there's lots of engineering, but ultimately what makes them robust and safe is kind of biological evolution. So it wasn't that, you know, the aircraft engineers came along and said, well, this would be the best design. And when it goes wrong, well, we'll just uh, make a better design then. It's more that they make the best design they know how to make. It breaks apart for some reason they didn't expect. They do the investigation and find out that square-edged windows develop cracks. So now aircraft have round-edged windows. Nobody saw that coming. But now we know that. And so what told us that wasn't, Human ingenuity, it was physics and biology. <laughs> right. And so there's a certain, you know, suspension of ego that comes with that, which is these evolved systems are too complex for humans to design ab initio. We have to design by observing, engaging in peer review, taking the best of everybody's ideas, and learning from things that went wrong or nearly went wrong. Before, and so when you look at it from that perspective, there's something very wrong about one person saying, "Well, I want square windows. Can I have them now?" And nobody found a bug in them, right? Like, no. Well, you might be right. We don't know, but let's uh, continue with the safety process, right? And, um, you know, in the in the same way, if, when people make modify when Boeing and Airbus make modifications to aircraft, they have to get them flight certified, which involves all kinds of rigorous testing, right? So Bitcoin is not as hierarchical, but it has an enormous amount of uh, testing that goes into it. And so, you know, part of the activate it now is kind of bypassing that process, which is the danger. Well, we've seen what happens the opposite side with Ethereum, which
2: openly said, let's move fast and break things. And they did break a lot of things, including people's money.
0: Yeah. I mean, that that kind of platform has tended to lose uh, about a Billion dollars a year to hacks and rug pulls and things. And yeah, that was last year. So you might have thought it was a one off, but I think it lost 300 million within the first few months of this year. So it's on track. It's on track. Money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fuck
2: that. I don't want that with my Bitcoin. Um, okay. So going back to the approach then, Jeremy's taken because they're, um, like I say, I, I've gone with the don't, I've gone with the t- can't, can't verify trust. That's my approach. I should get that as a t-shirt. And I've trusted people, and therefore, yeah, openly said I'm concerned about what's happening with this. Is there a different approach you think Jeremy
0: himself should have or could have taken? Well, I mean, I think he would say he tried, (laughs) because it's also a, a fact in open source software in general, and that extends to Bitcoin as well. That you know there are volunteers working on things. Mm-hmm. Either they're unpaid or they're paid a stipend to do what independently what they think is good for Bitcoin. So nobody's telling them what to do. And generally, it's more fun for people to build things rather than review other people's things. Yep. And so it's just a fact that if you want to, you know, if you think you have a good idea and you want to get it deployed, that depends on other people agreeing it's a good idea and being more forceful won't make them agree. If anything, it will make them yeah, do the pull opposite. back, yeah. right? And so I think that's where it went wrong, basically. So if you look at Schnorr, the time when I was discussing Schnorr's signatures in 2013 on IRC till when, when Taproot and Schnorr became live, that's a long time, right? It's eight years or eight something. Eight years, yeah. Um, but there was no force. I was just, like, describing ideas. I did almost nothing, in fact, apart from describing ideas and, like, other people... Gradually got more excited and spent a lot of time working out details, and finally you had it right. So, I think it's something else from the ITF. Now, of course, the ITF is a bit more uh, hierarchical, but they have um, a chair for each um, protocol discussion group, and the chair's role is to find consensus to see to see what the group of people discussing to declare when they've reached consensus. And it would be unthinkable for the chair to be the proposer of a protocol and then bless his own protocol and say, well, that one has consensus, we're going to activate it now. But if you look at what Jeremy's doing, not through any malice, I think, but just because he's enthusiastic and wants to generate action, he's kind of acting like, you know, the proposer and the implementer and the chair, and a person who's sort of trying to organize the meetings and get it activated. And it looks like, you know, a kind of one-man show. And you no, know, I mean I think you'd, what you just have to do, and I've discussed this with Jeremy last year as well, is you have to you know work with other people. So get some, find somebody else who's enthusiastic about it to co-propose it or co-author it or champion it, or you know, and then and then once you've got two people interested in it, maybe you'll find a third, and then you that it's a step closer to consensus. It's like building political support, kind of. Um, I mean, I think it's. You know, ultimately most of the people who are involved in the protocol development have got pretty good at separating ego from technical comparisons. So you'll see people having what sound like fist arguments about details. And at the end of the conversation they'll exclaim, Oh, you're right. That's great. Now we can move on. You know, so they they've convinced themselves that they're wrong. That's fine, right? They just want to see the best outcome go forward. You've got, to, you've got to engage in that conversation. And I think, you know, it can be frustrating because of the imbalance of energy to build things versus review things.
2: Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's um, and I guess for Jeremy, it sucks. Like he's probably worked on this really hard for two years, feels like he's ready to go, wants to get implemented, and then just hasn't been able to get that done.
0: Right. But I'd say it's like it's kind of jumping the queue as well, right? Because uh, describe Christian Decker's experience, right? He worked on uh the um, what is it uniform uh, transaction ID, and that didn't go anywhere. Like SegWit took over, but you know it was a better proposal, and he recognizes that, and he had a small part in it. So that's just that's just open source development in general is like that, right? Coming up against the Bitcoin glacier. Well, I mean, which it's, is for a good reason. It's a competition of ideas, yeah. and you know, it's and it's not. You know, it's a collaborative competition of ideas. So, if if you propose a kind of organised set of ideas as a proposal, some parts of them might end up being good and used, and some parts might might not. And you just have to be, you know, open to that. And I think also, you know, the imposition of a time frame is risky as well, right? So Jeremy was saying, well, like, you know, I need your comments by here, or we're gonna, I'm going to activate it. I mean, he's backed away from that now, but you know, people really don't like that because it's like a threat. Well, I mean, it's you know, it was like, well, we're gonna, it's like Boeing, like you know, or or the space shuttle Challenger, right? We're gonna launch on a state, became a political decision, and then it exploded, right? Well, it's, it's like S two X, yeah,
2: yeah. Okay, so so let's talk about that that activation as well because it it seemed to then not only did this idea come out of nowhere, it suddenly felt like, well, there's a way to brute force. Uh, get this live by using speedy activation, speedy trial activation. Right. Something, again, that I was told was used for Taproot. I, I mean, I wouldn't know anything about this at the time. Taproot was getting activated great. The little orange squares were appearing, yada, yada. But now now I am interested in this because I'm like, well, why was speedy trial used for Taproot? What was used previously? You know, what is this?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion about that. You see a lot of people... Um, uh, there's a CTV, Telegram, and I think IRC and so on. And there's clearly confusion about um, miners' part in activation. So uh, they, they think that, well, you, you make a proposal and the miners vote on it, and it happens or not. And that's the process. But that's really not the process. I mean, if, if we learn anything from the block size drama and the final SegWit activation by UASF, it's that miners have almost no influence. On the outcome, you know, 85% of miners said they were against the activation, it activated anyway, and they continued mining Bitcoin. So that, that's a lesson that everybody should learn. Now there are a lot of new people who don't know about the lesson. And so they just don't understand how it works. But basically, the what activates Bitcoin is more economics, the, the important economic nodes, like exchanges, wallets, and payment processors and individuals and investors running full nodes, if they agree and they upgrade, then the miners have to follow. And, you know, everybody has to follow, stay on the same network. Now, of course, you can get forks, and that's happened in the past where you get some kind of minority. But in particular, all the miners are doing is helping, you know, signaling that they've upgraded and helping users who don't upgrade to be safe. And that's it. So, in, and in particular, if if you say with a speedy trial, well, let's turn the decision over to miners, what does that mean? I mean, miners use pools. There are very few pool operators. So it basically means delegating the judgment of a consensus decision for the ecosystem and the investors to, I don't know, 20-odd guys who run pools. So what is the point of miner signaling then? It's... um it's to protect people who don't upgrade. So if you if you don't upgrade through a soft fork, you don't have a full understanding and miners could steal from you basically. Okay. And so if if the miners, you know, indicate that they've upgraded, now the cooperation of the majority honest miners will protect you if you don't upgrade. Right. And that's that's the point of it. So, so where are we at now with CTV? Has it been paused? Is there other discussions? Is... Um, well, the activation uh, discussion went away, yeah, and I think there's a bit more awareness of things that came before, things that are in flight. So they've, really, I think, people realised that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the way forward is more uh, cooperative comparison, just work between a different. Uh, designs. Right. So,
2: I mean, is Jeremy talking to Rusty? Are they comparing ideas?
0: I'm not sure. I mean, I think Jeremy has um, kind of spun out and made new discussion channels, which there are no developers in, or, you know, maybe application developers, but no protocol developers or almost no protocol developers. So that's kind of a little, little echo chamber um, so he needs to engage with protocol developers. Well, he tried, you know, but that he ran into the problem that everybody runs into is a mutual problem, right? That mm. there are fewer reviewers. So I think, you know, if, if if more proposals get together and they discuss amongst themselves, I'm sure Jeremy will join in and that will be a way forward.
1: Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, what is it, four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining, and I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C O M P A S S M I N I N G.io. Next up, it is Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot forward slash WBD. Next up, it's Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars, it's about replacing them. So, while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is LVL.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Also today, we have sportsbet.io. The very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T
2: dot I-O forward slash promotions. Is there any amount of, you know, not... Intentional or not by, you know, malicious intent, but certain amount of gatekeeping that perhaps exists around yourself. Peter Wille, Andrew Polstra, Gregory Maxwell, Matt Craig, like established, you know, people within the community who built that reputation. Whereby, if you can't get some kind of agreement from you guys that things are slower, and, and maybe that's a good thing, or maybe that's a bad thing. You know, what happens after you guys?
0: Well, I mean, I think that, you know, everybody's new ones. Yeah. And I popped up in two thousand thirteen promotional signatures and now we have them and I was certainly not forceful, right? And there are many new people involved in protocol design, implementation that were not here, you know, three years ago, five years ago, one year ago. And you know, for example, lightning, which is a a pretty big thing, there were two two versions of that proposed in parallel. One was duplex micropayment channels by Christian Decker. Another one was the Lightning proposal by Poon and Dreiger. And no offense to those guys, but nobody had heard of them before. Mm. And, you know, it was a really ingenious idea co-invented by two groups of people in parallel without knowledge, right? And so that that shows that newcomers can propose startlingly good ideas and get immediate fast traction on them. So, you know, for Lightning to work, it needed an opcode, but people saw that idea of Lightning had a lot of potential, so there was you know, enthusiasm to work out the details and get the opcodes done. So there, so, there so, isn't... An... So I don't think there is. I mean, I think the thing is that, you know... But you there have... may be a certain hierarchy that exists. I mean, there there are people with skill sets that you want to somehow enthuse to pay attention, to review things. But, you know, I think... You have to you still have to use some kind of common sense human interaction skills, right so if you want somebody to review something there's there's certain you know look look at how other people are doing things copy other people right so you now if you're not very good at sort of managing human interactions, find a co-author find you know find somebody else to help you champion it or navigate it um, and I mean I think ultimately. If you push too hard, it backfires. So I think that's a potential source of mistake as well.
2: Because and we've seen that again. It's like a historical lesson where people have tried to rush changes or pushed you know, changes into Bitcoin that haven't had consensus. And and so, you know it's kind of pushed some people away from Bitcoin. They've you know it's the um, they've had the they've they've had the wrong time preference on upgrades.
0: Well, I mean there have been some rage quits historically around the forks for sure, and. You know, at, at the time of the fork drama, you know, you were paid attention at that time and talking about it afterwards. The, um, you know, I think people sort of, uh, I think investors found the fact that it was hard to forcibly change Bitcoin to be a very bullish signal. Very. Yeah, you you hear Sailor talking about that, yeah. that that was the single most important thing. Another interesting thing you get if you talk to investors Sailor and people like his, you know, sort of investor mindset uh, about what features they would like for Bitcoin. Their primary feature is just don't break it. (laughs) Right. So they're actually not very interested in, you know, opt in micropayments or fancy things. Right. Because they're like, well, how risky is that? (laughs) Right. The status quo is good enough. Don't, don't break it. Yeah. So, So I think covenants, the pitch for the investor is vaults are good for. High value, long term storage.
2: Um, and obviously, for Saylor, he's in a different scenario though, where he holds so much Bitcoin that um, something like the spendability is not as interesting to him because his incentive model is based on the growth of hodlers. Which you know, uh, demand continues to increase means you know his billions become more billions, etc. So, he'd like,
0: yeah,
2: yeah, and and I would be cautious of. I, I completely agree with him. Just don't don't break it. But I would also be Cautious to to give too much weight to somebody whose incentive model's slightly different. Well,
0: yeah, you can you can see there are broadly two groups of. I mean, people use Bitcoin for many reasons. Some of them would be perfectly happy if it was a new gold ETF, even if it wasn't very bearer, just because of the harder money. I yep. think safety, in, you know, maybe in that camp. I think Hal Finney was talking about you know layer two banks. So they were thinking like a hard base money. But you know, for a lot of people, what makes it exciting is that it's permissionless bearer money with a low barrier to entry. Smartphone, it's all an app, you're, off, you're ready to go with no permission. And so for that to practically work, you need scalability solutions, you need payment solutions that work for uh, people in emerging markets who don't have that much money. And so I think both are important because ultimately the... You know, for the investor, they're investing in the adoption rate of something. And for there to be adoption, there needs to be payment capability. Well, I, my actual use for Bitcoin is pretty much the same as it was day
2: one. I buy it and I transfer it to a wallet. And sometimes I transfer a bit of that back, back out and I sell it. That's pretty much it. My only advancements have been transferring something to a Lightning wallet, which I've had on my phone, I've used when I've been away. And uh, moving to um a multi cold storage solution. So even if Bitcoin ossified right now, for me, would still serve a great purpose for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, you know, that it's, uh, it's good enough in a way. But, you know, with careful changes, I think it could be better and it can satisfy, you know, different use cases. And of course, you know, privacy is another one. Uh, Fungibility, privacy. Is there any?
2: What's been done on? Because
0: I feel like we've covered CTV now. What's?
2: Where are we at with kind of privacy and fungibility? Any big changes being proposed? Anything you're interested in?
0: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in privacy and fungibility. Is kind of where I came from. Pre Bitcoin was working on anonymous electronic cash protocols and things, and uh, that's where confidential transactions came from. And so I, you know, try to improve Bitcoin's privacy and realize that this is too complicated a change to expect to get into Bitcoin as a BIP in 2013. Uh-huh. So changed focus to work on modularity so that you could have side chains where you could do things like that. Um, so that, you know, maybe eventually that that will reach a state of kind of safety and compactness and characteristics that it could actually get into Bitcoin. But um, there are incremental things happening for privacy. I think, you know, the Taproot and Schnorr help a bit as well. And I think there are, at times, sort of network-level things, which are less consensus, more kind of network policy, privacy things. Unfortunately, there's not really any kind of major silver bullet technology that's reached maturity. I mean, certainly confidential transactions are interesting, Candidate Tech, the SNARK, Technology Arc, and Bulletproofs are interesting. And, you know, the later versions of confidential transactions use Bulletproofs. But those are still improving, and so it's probably some more years. So it's it's a sort of patience game, I guess, but there is a certain sort of safety and efficiency bar for things to go into Bitcoin.
2: Just move it slowly then. Um, Should we talk about Luna before we finish up?
0: Just because it's a bit of fun. If you like. Well,
2: I mean, look, it's not fun that a lot of people have lost a lot of money. That's fucking terrible. And also, it's not fun to see uh, Bitcoin being dragged about by Shitcoin activity elsewhere. That's the most annoying thing for me. Uh, And where it becomes really annoying, Adam, is uh, you have these big crashes in the markets. You suddenly it gets onto the, it was in Sky and BBC and the Daily Mail. And then your friends speak to you and they say, Oh, I hear Bitcoin's crashing again. You know, people want to ask you about the negative side of it. And you're like, Yeah, but this was because there's some stupid Ponzi. Uh, Algo uh, stablecoin idea that had nothing to do with Bitcoin. It was just somebody was then using the money they printed to buy a bunch of Bitcoin, then they had to resell. Like, we're affected by these decisions. And you would chatting to me beforehand, you know, about this perhaps affecting leverage traders in some ways unfairly.
0: Right. Well, I mean, people are investing in Bitcoin because they believe in it, because they look at the macroeconomic background, you know, money printing, inflation, interest rates, and looking for a hedge. And, you know, of course, if you just buy in cold store and the price drops a bit and, then it, you know, it halves and then it doubles across a period of a year, it it doesn't make that much difference once you get accustomed to that volatility. But some people are more risk on, you know, they've got leverage on. And so if somebody creates a bit of a flash crash drama, through market misunderstanding, uh, that can that can hurt them economically for through no fault of their own. So you get this kind of contagion effect. And of course if people are leveraged, the, you know, they're either forced to manually deleverage leverage to protect themselves, or the exchange the trading platforms will force to lever them. So that, you know, that amplifies the flash crash, basically. And you see stats posted, you know, so many hundred million liquidations, that's what it's about. So, yeah, I mean, Luna basically was sort of like a fractional reserve bank operate as a so-called decentralized thing. And um, and their idea was basically the sort of shares in the bank, which were the Luna tokens. And there were some VC investors that put in the original money. Um, it's a bit unclear whether it's somewhere between uh, $1.5 and $3 billion. I'm not sure how actually how much VC money got committed. I presume they got Luna tokens, a bit hazy on the details. Uh, like yourself, I only really paid attention when people started getting enthusiastic about Luna Foundation buying billion plus in Bitcoin. And then I was like, well, wait a minute. These, these guys are going to get themselves flash crashed and sell all the Bitcoin in one go, and that won't be helpful. And, you know, that was in late March. So scroll forward about six weeks and it happened.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I smell a different rat in that I just, it reminded me of block one. I just, this idea that you can create a token, print and sell a bunch of it, and then take that to buy a bunch of Bitcoin. One is you're openly, I feel like you're openly uh, telling people they're making a bad decision because you're taking their money and buying Bitcoin. That's what you're doing. You're saying, here, give me your money. I'll give you this token. I'm going to take that. I'm going to buy Bitcoin. Right. You're giving a market signal to that person. And that idea that, like, out of nowhere, because it came out of nowhere for me. I don't know how long Luna had been around. and So I don't pay attention to this shit. I've never actually used a stable coin, ever. Never used one. And I know I'm meant to use liquid. Um, But, uh, so for uh, me, I was just like, this just smells fishy. I don't, I don't like this. I hadn't even got into the mechanics of how it, how it worked. But the 20% interest, I was like, hmm, when anyone's offering 20% interest, that smells fishy as well. There were just so many things that smelled fishy. And suddenly here we are, it's a complete market crash. But you'd spotted it early on.
0: Yeah, well, I said, I said some of the same things early, which is, you know, they were buying, you know, people getting enthusiastic about how many Bitcoin they said they were buying. So I just asked on Twitter, some pointy questions like, you know, where is the money coming from that you're buying the Bitcoin with? Is it, is it ICO money? Is the ICO money your collateral? If it is, the whole thing could flash crash because the value of your ICO can get stressed uh, at the same time and then the whole thing can collapse. Um, Now, of course, they protested and said that, you know, that some of it was real money. You know, they'd actually got wire transfers from investors. But, Evidently, a lot of it wasn't real money, you know, because they their total supply of Luna at one point reached, I think, 17 billion or something. And so they had, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15% of that in real money. So, um, yeah.
2: Fractional reserve shitcoining.
0: I mean, about, about stable coins, I think it also is quite unhelpful because, you know, it's brought disrepute to, you know, conservative types of stable coins like Tether and Circle yep. and Gemini, uh, all of which have, you know, one-to-one or more than one-to-one backing of actual US dollar short-term deposits, cash equivalents, and, you know, very stated interest-bearing things. And so, you know, they can redeem one-to-one all day long, basically, because, you know, uh, I think, for example, during the last few days, Tether redeemed $3 billion out of I don't know what they're at, 80 some, um, in the space of a few days. So clearly they can redeem. But, you know, UST versus USDT, it's only one letter difference. I think some people get confused. Confu- well, it yeah. does get
2: confusing. The, yeah. There are so many of them. They get confusing. They A lot of them appear on different chains. You don't know what each one stands for. And I don't think people... Like, um, after I was on Pomp's show, and Pomp was asking me about it, and I was just like, it sounds a bit shady. And this guy dropped me an email. I said, oh, you don't really understand Luna and... Terra, and he's like sent me some articles and and i was like i was like this this article was you know, if i don't know 20 pages long if it was printed on a4 and was, it was all about the explanation about how it works how it maintains its peg you know how the lunar token interacts with the, the stable coin but like, you know this huge i was like i don't have time to understand all this shit i don't have time i just want to again it's a bit like trusting almost like if i was going to use a stable to- coin i think i trust. would like say Gemini, Tether, uh, Circle. I trust those. I'm going to use it. A bunch of people have trusted this and have got completely and utterly wrecked because they have no idea what they're dealing with.
0: Yeah, I mean, some of the transparency went out the window too because, you know, the I think you could observe the Luna token versus the um, Terra US, the UST, because it was on chain, and. Because it inflated the lunar supply by orders of magnitude. Just created more and more of them to try and um, uh, keep the thing afloat. But the Bitcoin reserves—they transferred them all, and that you could see that transfer to a, you know, to a professional market maker to try and defend. So, you know, that's lost visibility, and they're not answering questions like, did they sell all of it? Did they sell some of it? Did they sell none of it? We don't know. And I think another kind of curious aspect of this and really should cause some introspection for the VCs and professional investors who put up the, you know, $1.5 to $3 billion in the beginning is, you know, their reputations and money help bootstrap this thing. They may, I, I presume they get Luna tokens or some kind of, you know, discounted kind of tokens or stock in it. And because it's tokenized, one of the attractions for an investor is they can take the money out very quickly. And there was a period where this thing was going up in value very rapidly, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the VCs may have actually made a large profit uh before long before it imploded. And of course, taking, you know, taking a profit out actually leaves the thing higher leveraged and more fragile. So there's a there's a question there of, you know, whether professional investors are like moving away from funding innovation and products that provide value to users and you know there's an exit and people make money when they succeed in making a popular product versus you know helping lend, renting reputation to ponzi like things taking the money out in early and letting it collapse and then doing it again because that that is is a risk for you know for the end user it diverts Capital from productive uses to kind of casino behavior, and um, it risks the ire of regulators you know I mean immediately regulators are talking about terror, and apparently the SEC was already investigating terror, and do Kwon, uh, one of the founders, so I mean he could end up in jail right I presume so i mean he's he's in Singapore, but Singapore is a regulated a uh, financial center in its own right.
2: Yeah. Um yeah, it is frustrating um because every one of these rug pulls ends up bringing bitcoin into the same ecosystem of bullshit and we end up having to like not only defend like I said earlier defend it to my friends who are like, you know, what's happened to bitcoin and you have to defend it to regulators and it's just it's just bloody it's frustrating that you know people don't don't do a better job with this, especially with all these you know, crypto VCs raising you know, one, three, five billion to invest in Web three and and I feel like we're going to see this over and over again. I also feel like over the next week or two, we're going to hear about some funds who have maybe blown up. Or
0: yeah, I mean, somebody has got to got been hurt. And and you know, the other thing is the the explosion was considered to be a speculative attack. Like that was a funded, coordinated thing by somebody with a lot of market intelligence trading capability and money to play with and some leverage. So it's kind of like the George Soros attack against the British pound peg in pre-euro days. Um, You know, if if you have money and you see something that's illogical and people are suspending logic and pumping up the value of something, you can short it and bust the bubble. And, you know, I think some people feel that was... Uh, a bad act, but actually, no, it's, it's good because it flushes out silly stuff, so that what's left makes sense. So if there are and and you know the fact that they succeeded at that will give them funding and embolden other people with that skill set to work their way down the list and do that to anything else that doesn't make sense. And so ultimately, you end up with the survivors being less stupid ideas, more robust things. But I'm not sure that the the mechanism is there really to discourage VCs and big investors from lending reputation and putting discounted early money into these things because they probably some of them probably got their money out and made a profit on it.
2: Uh, yeah, almost certainly. I don't think it changes that. Hopefully, what it changes is the mindset of those who are potentially investing. But yeah, perhaps not. Um, I mean, we've seen a bunch of. New Bitcoin maxi's minted this week, people declaring they're done, and that's great. But but we've also seen all the I don't know if you've been on the Red Hit, but all the terrible comments of people saying they've lost everything.
0: No, I mean it's it is bad. I saw somebody commenting that, you know, one particularly bad thing about it is that because it's advertised as as a stablecoin as a dollar equivalent plus an interest rate, that's actually marketing itself to conservative investors who are saying, I don't I don't want the price volatility. I yep. just want an interest rate. I've got, as you said, it was naive to think that there's a risk-free twenty percent interest that doesn't exist. When the you know the free market interest rate, risk-free interest rate is super low at the moment, so that's a red flag. But you know, a lot of people are not professional investors; so they wouldn't spot that. So if they're looking for stability, they got the exact opposite.
2: Yeah, and also Alex Gladstein talks about how important stablecoins are for the. Um, the developing world, we've had a long conversation about that, and it's one of the reasons I've come a little bit less harsh on other protocols. As, as much as I don't want to, you know, I don't own any Ethereum, I wouldn't use it or Tron at the same time. I know there's people in like Palestine who are, you know, parts of Africa who are using stable coins on these protocols, uh, and they're using it uh, for survival. That I means that it's the money they trade, it's the way they protect their wealth. It, Bitcoin's too risky for them, but you know, if these people got. Yeah, are they sophisticated enough to understand the difference between a tether or a UST or US? You, know, the, you know, all these all these coins t- tend to sit near each other. So,
0: yeah, I mean, I think I think the the network that's used to transport the stablecoin is the, the centralized ones like uh, Circle and Tether and Gemini. Um, doesn't really matter because ultimately it's a claim on a central party mm. and it's reserve and and the reserves it set aside for the for their client funds, right? So. And you can, you know, you can, for example, with Tether, you can use that on, on a Bitcoin layer too, on sidechains, and there are proposals to do similar things for Lightning, a couple of competing prog- proposals for that. I mean, of course, I think, you know, uh, US dollars fall rapidly in value at the moment with the amount of money printing. So it's not really a, I mean, it's, it's short-term stable, but it's just predictably going down, right? Mm. So now Bitcoin has the opposite effect, which is, it's a bit unstable, um, but it tended to go up. And so has a has a positive price tra- trend over the longer term. So um, yeah, I mean, I think the a lot of probably the biggest amount of volume in stable coins, bearing in mind tether that, you know, there there are competing ones by market cap, but by transferred volume, tether is like 10x ahead of the rest, right? Yeah. And that is because it's embedded in most exchanges as the de facto way to move dollars. And so it's mostly used for trading, you know, people to move money between one exchange and another, as collateral for some of the derivative products, and as you know, Bitcoin secured lending, like on Hoddle Hoddle, you you're gonna borrow in a stablecoin basically. And then you can convert that into a bank account or something. Mm. Um, so I think you know the the other annoying thing is that the media doesn't get it often and sort of amplifies confusion, so they said you know they tried to say that Tether had broken the peg, but it's it's absolutely uh not the case you know it's it's it was being redeemed uh one to one the entire period, but the point is that banks suck, and so if you, if you have a short time preference, like you need some dollars in your bank now to cover like a share loan, or you need Tethers to trade now, you'll pay a premium to get it fast. And the only reason you're paying that premium is because banks suck. And so if the market is being dramatic, the premium could be high or low, but this happens all the time. And, it, and it, it's fine because, you know, if you're not in a hurry, just wait. And if you are in a hurry, you're probably in a hurry for a reason, which is you see something that's a cheap price and you want to buy it and you need to, you know, convert to tether or to dollar to get it. So you'll pay the premium and there will be other people incentivized by that premium to say, well, I'm not in a hurry. I have some tethers. You can have them and I'll go convert them for, you know, pick up the few percent difference, you know, next week. It's wild how often we have to deal with this shit.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I'm uh, I'm feeling like the NFTs are starting to crash as well now and I think a few other projects will collapse and I wonder if we're going to just do exactly the same in 4 years time,
0: 3 years time now. Well, yeah. I mean the I noticed the uh, there's a uh, various dominance indexes, but the the Bitfinex one which is BTC dom perp uh, was up 20% in the last 2 days. Wow. So that's sort of like you know, when you get a global financial drama the dollar tends to get stronger. Flight to safety. Mm-hmm. It might have its own problems, but, but people know it. And so it's kind of perceived flight to safety. And you see that in Bitcoin, you know, flight out of the long tail of altcoins to Bitcoin. Well, let's have it. How's uh,
2: how's everything at Boxstream?
0: Uh, going good, yeah. Lots of uh, mining infrastructure builds and the solar Tesla yeah. project. Fuck, I forgot about that. Tell me about that. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, so, well, we did a... Um, a jointly funded project with Block and engaged Tesla to build the uh, solar infrastructure and provide the Megapack batteries. So it's off-grid. Um, and the idea behind it is, our thesis is that the economics of Bitcoin mining can help fund green power infrastructure, build like to increase green power infrastructure. Yep. And the reason is that most power is actually overbuilt and underused because it has to deal with peaks yeah, in demand. Peak load. And so, you know, if if you were to build some power infrastructure and somebody would come up and say, well, I will pay, you know, X cents per kilowatt hour, 24 by 7, anything you've got spare, I'll take it. That makes your economics much better. And so, you know, you've got 100% duty cycle on the supply. So that should make it more profitable and easier to finance. And so that's you know that's what we're doing, starting with this project, and you know, then we're interested to grow it you know 100-fold. Wow, Tesla were totally into it. Uh, they're supplying the 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 megapacks, right, and okay. it, they actually do the solar install as well. But they're not an investor in it. Okay, and where where are you building it out? This is in Texas, uh, so we have um, a grid connected site, and we didn't grid connect this part of it, but it's on the same site, and that site is primarily a wind farm. So if you look in the background, there's loads of uh, big. Uh, wind towers. And, and is this a test or are you guys pretty happy with the economics of it? I mean, we're happy with the economics of it, but what what, what we intend to do is to make it transparent. So, that, you know, publish the financial model, profitability, real-time mining metrics. Um, partly because there's a lot of confusion and people are writing reports and nobody quite believes a report because, you know, one person's report says the opposite to another person's report if we say well well, let's just build it and show you and you can look at it for yourself and then there's no debate you know the numbers can speak for themselves so that's what we're doing amazing well listen always good to talk to you
2: likewise um, not sure when we'll speak next we'll see you next probably some event but um, appreciate you going through all that technical stuff for me and uh, yeah good luck Adam and uh, guess I'll see you sometime later in the year or we'll speak to you next week actually Why not? all right
1: All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel, or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.